You're listening to a sermon on the Mission Ridge Church Podcast. Stick around after the message for more information about Mission Ridge. Thanks for tuning in. This is uh, the final week in our Change Your World series. And we, um, the series right before this, we looked at Abraham. And uh, we looked at uh, the, the kind of partner that God pursues. God pursues in the scripture a kind of person. And, and what, what is that person? What is the characteristics of that person? And, and how do we see our core values play out in Abraham's story? And so that's really at the kind of at the individual level. We're hoping that all of us individually choose those core values and choose the uh, champion those core values as much as each of us champion those core values. Our church will be known for those core values. And then this series is really looking at what's the blueprint, hence the blueprint design um, of the logo. What's the blueprint of what church is supposed to look like or what we are trying to create here in Mission Ridge? And we're looking at the stories of Ezra and Nehemiah, they originally were one story, and then about 300 AD, uh, it was really the Christians that split the two books into, or the one book into two. And so, but we've looked at this story as one contiguous story, one continuous story. Uh, one author is very complex in its design. And there's a ton that's being communicated even through the design of this book. Now, it's important to note that this is the last story chronologically in the Old Testament. In other words, you close the curtain on this story, and the next story that pops up is Jesus. And I think it's important to note that at the end of this story, we have what's called the 400 silent years. There's no, no more prophetic speaking. There's no more prophets kind of speaking into the problems that they see around them. And so how this story ends matters, and we're going to take a look at that today. So let's dive in. Nehemiah 13. Whew, this mask is so much fun. On that day, they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people, and in it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. Now, this term, not enter the assembly of God, comes out of Deuteronomy 23. And what the intent is, is that they are not to go to the altar and perform a sacrifice. Now, it has larger implications than that, but that's the, that's the most basic thing you need to understand. If you're familiar with the temple court system, there is the court of the Gentiles, um, and then there's an inner court, and there's another court beyond that, um, and that final court actually has the, the altar. And, and the Ammonites and the Moabites we're not allowed up to that altar to make a sacrifice. That's what that means. 
for they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. As soon as the people heard the law, they separated themselves from Israel and all those, all of those, all of those of foreign descent. Wow, that's an overreaction. Like there's two people groups that are not allowed to approach the altar to make a sacrifice in, in temple worship, but they're separating themselves from everybody that's of foreign descent. I think that's a mistake. Now, this story comes out of Numbers 22. If you want to take a look at that, you probably remember the story of, of a man on a donkey and, and, uh, and an angel with a sword and the donkey stops. And um, it's kind of a fun story, especially for, for kids. Now, before this, Eliashab, the priest who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offerings, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, singers, and gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests." This is weird. So Tobiah is an Ammonite or a Moabite. I can't remember. He's one or the other. He's one of these two people groups that are not supposed to be at the altar, and yet this guy has a residence. He's, he's made a home in part of the temple court. While this was taking place... I was not in Jerusalem. So Nehemiah has actually gone back to Babylon. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king. And after some time, I asked for leave of the king and came to Jerusalem. And then I discovered the evil that Elishab had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry, and I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders that they cleansed the chambers and brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. I also found out that the portions of Levites had not been given to them. So the taxes that they talked about last week that, that Logan talked about that they agreed on as part of the seven rulings that they came up with for the law. And they were like figuring out how to apply this the law to their present circumstances, they stopped falling through with that. So the Levites and singers who did the work had fled to his field. So they weren't making the money that they're supposed to make. And so they go home and they are looking for another way to take care of themselves financially. So I confronted the officials and said, why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. Then all Ju Judah brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. And I appointed as treasurers over the storehouses 
Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, Bediah the Levites, and as their assistant, Hanan the son of Zakur, son of Mataniah, for they were considered reliable, and their duty was to distribute to their brothers. Remember me, O my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. Well, this is the way chapter 13 starts. In this pattern that we've just seen, we're going to be told that in those days, something's taking place. And Nehemiah, he either realizes it or he discovers it or he sees it. He sees this problem. He's going to confront the problem. And and sometimes he confronts the problem in a redemptive way. And other times it's he overreacts like the people of Israel did with the Ammonites and the Moabites. Instead of just dealing with the two um, people groups, they, they applied this broadly to a bunch of people groups, and they applied it farther than God intended. And so Nehemiah confronts, he creates a plan of action, it's an overreaction more often than not. And then he has this refrain at the end that says, remember me, oh my God. Which the uh, interesting note, the uh, rabbis will tell you they, they don't see a lot of humility in Nehemiah in this chapter, and I think I agree with them. And so we see this pattern repeat, and I'm just going to kind of spark note the next two events. The, the next event is that he sees that Sabbath is not being observed. They're treading wine presses, they're loading up donkeys, they're buying, they're selling. And his overreaction is he locks the city gates for 24 hours. He sets up guards. He threatens violence. He says, why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. Man, (laughs) this guy's got some chutzpah, huh? And then the next pattern that we see, he observes that, the, they're, that they have married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. And again, his overreaction is, I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. Can you imagine if we tried to do church that way? Yeah. We'll, we'll do the sad face. Maybe the, uh, what in the world is that face? Um, I pictured Nehemiah running around, like, who's sinning over here? Who's, all right, what sin are you breaking? You know, and, and it's not that he's not noticing things that should be noticed and not addressing things that probably need to be talked about. But his approach lacks grace. And I think he misses the heart of God in this. And, I, and who's inviting Nehemiah to dinner? Not me. <laughs> like, I would just be afraid to have that dude over. Well, again, this is the last chapter of the Jewish scriptures. This is the last chapter 
of really the Davidic kingdom. So a thousand years before Christ came, David was made king. And David did really well most of the time. When he failed, he failed um, in gigantic ways. And, and from David to Solomon, we see that we see in some ways Solomon um, improved the kingdom. But by the time, by the end of Solomon's reign, Israel looks like Egypt. Everything is big and bold and golden. And we're told in First uh, Kings that, that the silver was more plentiful than the stones on the street. And the temple is built way bigger than God had asked for. And everything's laden with gold. And then Solomon's son, Rehoboam, can't even maintain what his dad produced. And by the time, by the time he's done as king, the kingdom is divided. And Jeroboam takes 10 tribes in the north, and Rehoboam takes the two tribes in the south, and the 10 tribes in the north will continuously be just act wickedly towards their God. That's, and then both Israel and Judah are taken into captivity. Israel, the northern ten tribes, they go to Assyria. Judah goes to Babylon. And then we have the story of Ezra and Nehemiah. Now, Ezra... In the story of Ezra and Nehemiah, we're not seeing the same kinds of problems as far as, far as idol worship, but they deal with the same symptoms or the same temptations because they, they marry foreign women instead of having, um, instead of leading those people to a better understanding of who their God is, those people are, are leading them astray. And that's really the problem that we see here in the story. The Ezra and Nehemiah story has a repeating pattern where the king sends out a leader. That leader faces opposition, and then there's a strange anticlimax. And so we see that with Zerubbabel and Ezra and Nehemiah. And then we had last week's story, which seems to be kind of a reprieve, like, hey, maybe they're going to get this figured out. But as soon as Nehemiah steps out of the picture in this chapter, the people go back to doing what they were doing before. And if that leader isn't immediately in their presence, that particular leader isn't immediately in their presence. They, they don't seem to do well. For the people of Judah and Israel, if their king was a godly king, the people seemed to go where the godly king went, by and large. The masses went where that leader went. If that leader was sacrificing their children with fire, 
the rest of the people sacrificed their children with fire. If that leader was burning, was taking down the uh, high places and the places of worship to the false gods, then the people followed that. If there was a good leader in their presence, they seemed to go where, where God would want them to go. If there was an evil leader in their presence, they didn't know what to do. And that's how the story ends. That's how the story ends. And it feels anticlimactic. And really the way, if you read the very last verses, and I didn't want to spend all of our time on just Nehemiah 13 because I want to talk about who we're going to be as a church. But if you read the last verses, you're just like, this is the weirdest ending to this story ever. It's like uh, my wife's, Favorite movie, or one of her favorites, August Rush. Have you seen that movie? Kid's a savant. He plays the guitar like uh, Logan does. A um, little better singer. <laughs> Logan's not even in here. That joke went, went for nothing. <laughs> um, Christy loves that movie until the very end of the movie. And it's kind of like, well, where's the happy ending? Like, you, you see the three people, and they kind of see each other from a distance, but they don't, there's no... <sighs> That's like this story. It's just like, this is the end of the story? This is the last chapter? Well, Jesus comes on the scene 400 years later to establish something different. And he says this. The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Now, this term gospel, it's a, it's a borrowed term. Um, Alexander the Great was the first to use it, I believe, when he was establishing um, the Greek empire. We'll talk about this more in footnotes. But it's really this, it's this good news of this kingdom and what this kingdom means and what this kingdom brings. And we're going to look at this kingdom, this kingdom of God. When you look in the scriptures in the New Testament, when you see kingdom of God and you see kingdom of heaven, just know that the authors are saying the same thing. It's, it's the same term. Um, we'll talk about that in footnotes. There's two ways of saying the same thing. So the kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God, that's one kingdom. So what is this kingdom that Jesus is bringing? What is this, this kingdom that he's talking about? Well, he says, it's like treasure hidden in a field. And if you find it, you need to go sell everything so that you can obtain it. So whatever you were spending your life on before, you need to spend your life on this kingdom. In a parable, we're told that the kingdom of heaven provides shade, even to the unrighteous, regardless of their response. We're told that tax collectors and prostitutes will get into the kingdom before some devout religious people. We're told that your righteousness must exceed the Pharisees and Sadducees. 
if you're going to enter into this kingdom. The kingdom of heaven will have people from all the nations. They'll come from the east and the west, and they'll recline at the table of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The kingdom of heaven belongs to children. It's not complicated. We shouldn't complicate it. In fact, we must become like a child in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. We're told that it's difficult for the wealthy to enter the kingdom of heaven. Not, not impossible, because with God, all things are possible, but it's, it's challenging. We're told that if you are poor in spirit, yours is the kingdom of heaven. In other words, you may not have a lot figured out spiritually. You don't have to have a lot figured out spiritually. You really don't have to have one thing figured out, and that's who Jesus Christ is in order to gain access to the kingdom. If you're persecuted for righteousness' sake, then yours is the kingdom of heaven. To be great in the kingdom of heaven, you have to be servant of all. In fact, there's not a lot of talk about leadership from the lips of Jesus. He talks an awful lot about how to serve, not necessarily how to lead. Doing things like feeding the hungry, offering water to the thirsty, inviting the stranger in, clothing the naked, visiting prisoners and patients, forgiving 70 times 7 is critical it's critical for inheriting this kingdom. Jesus came to establish a different kind of kingdom. Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah tried to lead a kind of a revival, as it were. But they missed the heart of God for people. In the last 2,000 years, the church has not always gotten it right. We know this to be true. But God's kingdom does move forward. Every time we experience God, we experience heaven. Every time God answers prayer, we experience heaven. Every time we partner with God in what he wants to do here now in Missoula, we experience heaven. When you pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, you are asking God to have heaven crash into Missoula. That's what we're asking for when we pray those words. We're saying, God, we need to see something very different in this town. We need to see something very different happen within our community, within our nation, within our politics, within our race relations. We've got this COVID thing going on. There's people that they're either dying or they're impacted economically. We need you to see what's going on. We know that right now suicide's an issue. 
We know that child abduction is, is an issue. Depression, it's impacted us all in, in, in different ways, some more severely than others. I read an article that said that a, a person of color, a male black man my age, is nine times more likely to die because of COVID than I am. Now, COVID doesn't scare me, but if I had nine times greater chance of dying, I might be concerned. My access to healthcare is phenomenal. That's not true of every American. It's not true of most Americans. And so when we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's this kingdom that Jesus talked about over and over and over again. And I could just scratch the surface of what kingdom means because Jesus talked about it everywhere he went. But as a church, our blueprint, we will be a people who partner with God to bring heaven crashing into Missoula because I believe that's what Christ has called us to. Kingdom can be seen in the things that Jesus did. He went around forgiving people's sins. People that had gone down horrific paths, horrific life choices, they flocked to Jesus because they knew he would forgive them. Jesus invited people in. He invited in tax collectors. I love the first few scenes. Uh, what's that online, that Facebook show that the guys attack? Matthew, it's about Matthew, the tax collector. Um, I can't think of the name, but the chosen, yes. Like, I love that first few scenes, and it's all I've watched because I, I was watching on my phone and wanted to get it connected to my TV, and someone was watching TV, so I didn't do it that day. But just the first few scenes where Jesus invites this tax collector, and the other disciples are like, well, you do know who this guy is, right? Like, do you, have a, do you know who you are inviting in? Jesus is like, yeah, I got a pretty good idea. I think I got this figured out. That was Jesus. He invited people in that other people thought shouldn't be invited in. We need to do that as a church. Jesus was about restoring relationships. And he elevated every voice. The way he honors women of that time is amazing. We need to continue that work. He elevated the voice of the oppressed. And then he made disciples and he invites us into that same work. We need to teach people the ways of God because tell me if I'm wrong, but there's, there's some crazy ideas out there about God, aren't there? Some really, like, and that's fine. I mean, if you've got a crazy idea about God, that's where we all start. 
but we need to help folks understand. And then Jesus built community. And that's who we are as a church. These are the kinds of things that we'll engage in. We're going to help people know that their sins are forgiven, that they're invited in, that we need to restore relationships, resolve conflict, elevate voices, making disciples, teaching people about everything that Jesus commanded. And so the first call to action is ask for a new heart. If you've never done this before, if you've never... We call it inviting Jesus into our heart. It's one way of saying it. In John 3, we see these words. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So this is a teacher of teachers. This is... This is the guy that teaches the rest of the nation. This is how we're going to teach God's word to people. He says, we know that you have to be from God because no one does what you do. That's his testimony. He doesn't even get a chance to answer or, or to ask a question. Jesus answered him, though. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven or kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God that which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. Now, when Jesus talks about water and the Ruach, the Holy Spirit, it's going to take this religious leader right back to Exodus, right back to the parting of the Red Sea, where the Spirit hovered over the water. The Ruach was over the water and parted the sea, and the, and the people walked through on dry ground. Jesus is inviting this teacher of teachers of the people of Israel on a personal exodus of following Jesus. And so when we are baptized, when we go, I know that only you do the kinds of things that you do, Jesus, like Nicodemus has said here, when we come to that moment of recognizing that, that's when we are baptized and the Holy Spirit comes upon us. We need new hearts. This, this is in alignment with Ezekiel 26. It says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. Ezekiel's looking at his contemporaries, Zerubbabel, Ezra, Nehemiah. He's seen all their work, all their effort to try to help people to be godly. And he's gone, oh, we're missing something. The people of God that followed God well had God's spirit on them. 
David had God's spirit on him. I'm not sure we see the Holy Spirit come on Solomon. We're told he has a spirit of wisdom, but we're not told that the Holy Spirit comes upon him. And then Solomon's son, Rehoboam, there's no mention of the Holy Spirit. With Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah, the most that we're told is that God's favor was upon them. Not the Spirit. We need a new heart. We need a new spirit. The Spirit that gives us the ability to live for God. And then number two, as a church, each of us needs to live out our role. We need to do our part. We need to live out our God-given design within the body. We'll go back to Ephesians 4. We've hit this before in this series. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. As a church, we believe in the kingdom of priests, that all of us has a role to play. And each of us is equipped by God's spirit to do certain things within the body. Now, God may have you to lead one, to teach one, to evangelize one, or he may have you to teach hundreds or thousands. Whatever the case, for Logan and I, our part is to equip you so that you can equip others. And all of us have a role to play until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to assure manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And so instead of having one Nehemiah, that when Nehemiah steps out of the picture, we're in trouble, we all have a part to play in encouraging each other, in helping each other grow, in figuring this out together. We all have a part to play in that. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried out by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. I wonder, I wonder if the apostle Paul writing this is thinking about the Ezra and Nehemiah story and how easily the people got off track. Rather speaking the truth in love, that might say something to the Nehemiah story. Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way and into him who is the head into Christ. We will be a people who partner with God to bring heaven crashing into Missoula, and we all have our part to play in that whether it's in our life-transforming groups, whether it's in our care groups, whether it's in a one-on-one relationship, whether it's within our community or at a workplace, you represent Christ and his spirit being in you matters. And so the third call to action is don't ignore the leading of the Holy Spirit. 
Did you know that Jesus actually told his disciples that it was better for him to go than to stay? Because if he doesn't go, then the helper won't come. John 16. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. When he comes, he'll convict the world concerning, concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And so the, the Holy Spirit, he's called the, the helper. He's called the spirit of truth. He communicates, or God communicates to us through the agency of the Holy Spirit. He reminds us of the things that we've been taught in the scriptures. He leads us to accomplish the will of our Father. I think of uh, in Acts chapter 7 or 8, when Philip is led by the Spirit. Actually, all the way through the book of Acts, you'll see over and over and over again the Holy Spirit at work leading people to do various tasks, helping people to understand the next thing that God wants them to do. So we don't want to ignore the leading of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit's the one who brings conviction when we're heading down a path that is harmful to ourselves or to others. And that's why the Apostle Paul says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. The Holy Spirit leads us in, in positive ways, but he also will rebuke us if we need that. But if we ignore his leading either for the positive things or for the things that he wants to correct, if we ignore those things, then we are left powerless to live godly lives in our community. And there's been times where I've had to just repent of, of not only my sin, but also my rebelliousness against God's spirit inside of me. I'm going, oh, I'm not hearing from God very much right now. Maybe I've been ignoring him. Yep, that's what I've been doing. I've ignored his voice. I've ignored his agency. I've, I've ignored his lordship. See, we don't, need a, we don't need a bunch of Nehemiahs running around. Are you sinning? Are you sinning? Or, or redirecting or creating plans like Nehemiah was fantastic at creating plans. What we need, apparently, according to the design of the Father and the Son, is the Holy Spirit working in each of us and each of us listening to that Spirit and each of us doing our part. And God could get way more done through a group of godly people, each choosing to do their part, each submitted to the Lordship, each empowered by the Holy Spirit, the same power that raised Christ from the dead, we're told, works in each of us, both to change us, thank God for that, do the smiley face for that 
because I need that, both to change us and equip us for the work of ministry in our care groups, in our life transforming groups, within our homes, within our workplaces, within our neighborhoods. This is the work that God wants to do through his church. This is the kingdom of heaven crashing into Missoula. Thanks for listening to the Mission Ridge Church Podcast. Be sure to subscribe and share if you enjoyed this message. Mission Ridge is a new church in Missoula, Montana. If you're in the Missoula area, we would love to have you join us for worship on a Sunday. For more information about Mission Ridge, connect with us on Instagram, Facebook, or online at missionridge.church. If you would like to partner with us financially, you can give securely online at missionridge.church forward slash give. Thanks for tuning in. We hope you have a blessed week. We'll catch you on the flip side.